Part two of History of Farming in Ontario. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. History of Farming in Ontario by C. C. James. Edited by Adam Short and A. G. Doughty. Part two. The first Ayrshire cattle can be traced back to the Scottish settlers who arrived during this period. These emigrants had provided their own food for the voyage to Canada and in some cases brought a good milk cow to provide fresh milk on the voyage. She would be disposed of on landing at Montreal or in the eastern part of Upper Canada. This accounts for the early predominance of Ayrshires in eastern Ontario. Thus, to the period 1830-45, to 45, belongs the first foundation of the purebred stock industry. It was in this period also that the first signs appear of improved farm implements and labour-saving machinery. Ploughs of improved pattern, lighter and more effective, were being made. Land rollers and harrows made in the factory began to take the place of the homemade articles. Crude threshing machines, clover seed cleaners, root cutters, and a simple but heavy form of hay rake came into use. The mowing machine and the reaper were making their appearance in Great Britain and the United States, but they had not yet reached Upper Canada. The organization of agricultural societies in the various districts and the great impetus given to the keeping of good stock led, in 1843, to the suggestion that a provincial organization would be of benefit to the farming industry. In the neighboring state of New York, a similar organization had been in existence since 1832, and successful state fairs had been held, which some of the more prominent farmers of Upper Canada had visited. An agricultural paper called the British American Cultivator had been established in York, and through this paper, in letters and editorials, the idea of a provincial association was advocated. For three years the discussion proceeded, until finally, in 1846, there was organized the Provincial Agricultural Association and Board of Agriculture for Canada West, composed of delegates from various district societies. The result was that the first provincial exhibition was held in Toronto on October 21st and 22nd of that year. The old government house at the southwestern corner of King Street and Simcoe Street, then empty, was used for the exhibits, and the stock and implements were displayed in the adjoining grounds. The Canada Company gave a contribution of $200. Eight local societies made donations. About $280 was secured as gate money and 297 members paid subscriptions. Premiums were paid to the amount of $880, the bulk of which went to livestock. Books, which cost about $270, were given as prizes, and there was left a cash balance on hand of $400. A ploughing match was held, and on the evening of the first day a grand banquet was given, attended by the officers and directors and by some of the leading citizens of Toronto. Among the speakers at this banquet were Chief Justice Robinson and Egerton Ryerson, Superintendent of Education. The organization of this provincial association fittingly introduces another era in agricultural growth. It is to be noted that this provincial organization was a self-created body. It drew at first no government funds direct. It commended itself to the people, for on July 28, 1847, the Provincial Parliament in session at Montreal 
passed an act incorporating it under the name of the Agricultural Association of Upper Canada, and in the charter named as members a number of the leading citizens of the province. It was governed by a board of directors, two of whom were chosen annually by each district agricultural society. The objects set forth were the improvement of farm stock and produce, the improvement of agricultural implements, and the encouragement of domestic manufactures, of useful inventions applicable to agricultural or domestic purposes, and of every branch of rural and domestic economy. Out of this provincial association came all the further agricultural organizations of a provincial nature, and ultimately, some forty years later, the Ontario Department of Agriculture. The second provincial exhibition was held at Hamilton in 1847, and Lord Elgin, the Governor-General, was in attendance. He was also a generous patron, for his name appears as a donor of $100. The address which he delivered at the banquet has been preserved in the published records, and is copiously marked with cheers and loud applause. The third exhibition was held at Coburg in 1848. The official report of the exhibits indicates that purebred stock was rapidly increasing and improving in quality, but the most significant paragraph is that dealing with implements, and this is well worth quoting in full. Of implements of Canada make, the show was deficient, and we were much indebted to our American neighbors for their valuable aid on this occasion. A number of ploughs, straw cutters, drills, corn shellers, churns, etc., etc., were brought over by Messrs. Brigg and Company of Rochester, Mr. Emery of Albany, and a large manufacturing firm near Boston. Mr. Bell of Toronto exhibited his excellent plough, straw cutter, and reaping machine. The first prize for the latter article was awarded to Mr. Helm of Coburg for the recent improvements which he has effected. Mr. Clark of Paris exhibited his one-horse thrashing mill, which attracted much attention. At the fourth exhibition, held at Kingston in 1849, the show of implements was much more extensive, and comment was made on the improvement of articles of home manufacture. At this meeting, Professor J. F. W. Johnson of Edinburgh, who was making a tour of North America, was present. The address of the President, Henry Rutten of Coburg, is a most valuable reference article descriptive of the agricultural progress of the province from the first settlements in 1783 to the time of the exhibition. Rutten was a loyalist's son, and, from his own personal knowledge, he described the old plough that was given by the government to each of the first settlers. It consisted of a small iron socket, whose point entered by means of a dovetailed aperture into the heel of the coulter, which formed the principal part of the plough, and was in shape similar to the letter L the shank of which went through the wooden beam, and the foot formed the point which was sharpened for operation. One handle and a plank split from the side of a winding block of timber, which did duty for the mold-board, completed the implement. Besides provisions for a year, I think each family had issued to them a ploughshare and coulter, a set of drag-teeth, a log-chain, an axe, a saw, a hammer, a bill-hook and a grubbing-hoe, a pair of hand-irons, and a cross-cut saw among several families, and a few other articles. He then refers to the large number of implements, then being pressed upon the farmers, 
until they have almost become a nuisance to the farmer who desires to purchase a really useful article. All of which indicates that a distinctive feature of the period beginning with 1846 was the introduction and rapid extension of improved farm machinery. A few words as to the reaping machine, which contributed more than any other modern implement to the development of agriculture in the past century, may not be out of place. Various attempts had been made at producing a machine to supersede the sickle, the scythe, and the cradle before the Reverend Patrick Bell, in 1826, presented his machine to the Highland Agricultural Society of Scotland for its examination. Bell's machine was fairly successful, and one was then in operation on the farm of his brother, Inc. Michael, in the curse of Gowrie. One set of knives was fixed, the other set worked above and crossed these like the blades of a pair of scissors. The grain fell on an endless cloth, which carried and deposited the heads at the side of the machine. A horse pushed it forward and kept all parts in motion. It was simple and, we are told, harvested twelve acres in a day. This was in 1826. In the New York Farmer and American Gardener's Magazine for 1834 may be found the descriptions and illustrations of Obed Hussey's Grain Cutter and Cyrus H. McCormick's Improved Reaping Machine. The question has been raised as to whether either of these United States inventions owed anything to the earlier production of Patrick Bell. It was, of course, the improved United States reaping machines that found their way into Upper Canada shortly after the organization of the Provincial Agricultural Association. Our interest in this matter is quickened by the fact that Reverend Patrick Bell, when a young man, was for some time a tutor in the family of a well-to-do farmer in the county of Wellington, and there is a tradition that while there he carried on some experiments in the origination of his machine. The suggestion of a mysterious visitor from the United States to the place where he was experimenting is probably mere conjecture. This period, 1846 to 1867, was one of rapid growth in population. The free grant land policy of the government was a great attraction for tens of thousands of people in the British Isles, who were impelled by social unrest, failure of crops, and general stagnation in the manufacturing industries to seek new homes across the sea. In the twenty years referred to, the population more than doubled, and the improved lands of the province increased fourfold. The numbers of cattle and sheep about doubled, and the wheat production increased about threefold. Toward the latter part of the period, a new agricultural industry came into existence, the manufacture of cheese and factories. It was in New York State that the idea of cooperation in the manufacture of cheese was first attempted. There, as in Canada West, it had been the practice to make at home from time to time a quantity of soft cheese, which, of course, would be of variable quality. To save labor, a proposition was made to collect the milk from several farms and have the cheese made at one central farm. The success of this method soon became known, and small factories were established. In 1863, Harvey Farrington came from New York State to Canada West and established a factory in the county of Oxford about the same time that a similar factory was established in the county of Missisqua, Quebec. Shortly afterwards, factories were built in Hastings County and near Brockville in Leeds County. Thus began 
an industry that had a slow advance for some fifteen years, but from 1880 spread rapidly, until the manufacture of cheese in factories became one of the leading provincial industries. The system followed is a slight modification of the cheddar system, which takes its name from one of the most beautiful vales in the west of England. Its rapid progress has been due to the following circumstances. Ontario, with her rich grasses, clear skies, and clean springs and streams, is well adapted to dairying. Large numbers of her farmers came from dairy districts in the mother country. The cooperative method of manufacture tends to produce a marketable article that can be shipped and that improves with proper storage. Great Britain has proved a fine market for such an article, and the industry has, for over 30 years, received special help and careful supervision and direction of the provincial and dominion governments. During this period, we note the voluntary organization of the Ontario Fruit Growers Association, a fact which alone would suggest that the production of fruit must have been making progress. The early French settlers along the Detroit River had planted pear trees or grown them from seed, and a few of these sturdy stalwart trees over a century old, still stand and bear some fruit. Mrs. Simcoe, in her journal, July 2, 1793, states, We have thirty large May Duke cherry trees behind the house, and three standard peach trees, which supplied us last autumn for tarts and desserts during six weeks, besides the numbers the young men eat. This was at Niagara. The records of the agricultural exhibitions indicate that there was a gradual extension of fruit-growing. Importations of new varieties were made, Rochester in New York State apparently being the chief place from which nursery stock was obtained. Here and there, through the province, gentlemen having some leisure and the skill to experiment were beginning to take an interest in their gardens and to produce new varieties. On January 19, 1859, a few persons met in the boardroom of the Mechanics Hall at Hamilton and organized a fruit growers association for Upper Canada. Judge Campbell was elected as president, Dr. Hurlbert first vice president, George Leslie second vice president, Arthur Harvey secretary. The members of this association introduced new varieties and reported on their success. They were particularly active in producing such new varieties as were peculiarly suitable to the climate. For nine years they maintained their organization and carried on their work unaided and unrecognized officially. To this period belongs also the first attempts at special instruction in agriculture and the beginnings of an agricultural press. Both are intimately connected with the association already referred to, that had been organized in 1846 by some of the most progressive citizens. For four years, the Provincial Association carried on its work and established itself as a part of the agricultural life of Canada West. In 1850, the government stepped in and established a Board of Agriculture as the executive of the association. Its objects were set out by statute and funds were to be provided for its maintenance. The new lines of work allotted to it were to collect agricultural statistics, prepare crop reports, gather information of general value, and to present the same to the legislature for publication, 
and to cooperate with the provincial university in the teaching of agriculture and the carrying on of an experimental or illustrative farm. Professor George Buckland was appointed to the chair of agriculture in the university in January 1851, and an experimental farm on a small scale was laid out on the university grounds. Professor Buckland acted also as secretary to the board until 1858, when he resigned and was succeeded by Hugh C. Thompson. He continued his work for some years at the university and was an active participant in all agricultural matters up to the time of his death in 1885. Provision having been made for agricultural instruction at the university, the board in 1859 decided to establish a course in veterinary science, and at once got into communication with Professor Dick of the Veterinary College at Edinburgh, Scotland. In 1862, a school was opened in Toronto under the direction of Professor Andrew Smith, recently arrived from Edinburgh. The British American cultivator was established in 1841 by Eastwood and Company and W. G. Edmondson, with the latter as editor. It gave place in 1849 to the Canadian Agriculturalist, a monthly journal edited and owned by George Buckland and William MacDougall. This was the first official organ of the board till the year 1864, when George Brown began the publication of The Canadian Farmer with the Reverend W. F. Clark as editor-in-chief and D. W. Beadle as horticultural editor. The board at once recognized it, accepted it as their representative, and the Canadian agriculturalist ceased publication in December 1863. The half-century of British immigration, 1816 to 1867, had wrought a wonderful change. From a little over a 100,000, the population had grown to a million and a half. Towns and cities had sprung into existence. Commercial enterprises had taken shape. The construction of railways had been undertaken. Trade had been developed along new lines. The standards of living had materially changed. And great questions, national and international, had stirred the people and aroused at times the bitterest political strife. The changed standards of living can best be illustrated by an extract from an address delivered in 1849 by Sheriff Rutten. Referring to the earlier period, he said, our food was coarse but wholesome, with the exception of three or four pounds of green tea a year for a family which cost us three bushels of wheat per pound. We raised everything we ate, we manufactured our own clothes, and purchased nothing except now and then a black silk handkerchief or some trifling article of foreign manufacture of the kind. We lived simply, yet comfortably, envied no one, for no one was better off than his neighbor. Until within the last thirty years, one hundred bushels of wheat, at two shillings six pence per bushel, was quite sufficient to give an exchange for all the articles of foreign manufacture consumed by a large family. The old-fashioned, homemade cloth has given way to the fine, broadcloth coat. The linsey-woolsey dresses of females have disappeared, and English and French silks been substituted. The nice, clean-scoured floors of the farmers' houses have been covered by Brussels carpets. The spinning wheel and loom have been superseded by the piano. And in short, a complete revolution in all our domestic habits and manners has taken place, the consequences of which 
are the accumulation of an enormous debt upon our shoulders and its natural concomitant political strife. Students of Canadian history will at once recall the story of the rebellion of 1837, the struggle for constitutional government, the investigation by Lord Durham, the repeal of the preferential wheat duties in England, the agitation for Canadian independence, and other great questions that so seriously disturbed the peace of the Canadian people. They were the growing pains of a progressive people. The Crimean War in 1854-56 gave an important, though temporary, boom to Canadian farm products. Reciprocity with the United States from 1855 to 1866 offered a profitable market that had been closed for many years. Then came the close of the great civil war in the United States and the opening up of the cheap, fertile prairie lands of the Middle West to the hundreds of thousands of farmers set free from military service. This westward movement was joined by many farmers from Ontario. There was a disastrous competition in products and an era of agricultural depression set in just before Confederation. It was because of these difficulties that Confederation became a possibility and a necessity. The new political era introduced a new agricultural period, which began under conditions that were perhaps as unfavorable and as unpromising as had been experienced for over half a century. The growth of scientific farming 1867-88. The period we shall now deal with begins with Confederation in 1867 and extends to 1888, when a provincial minister of agriculture was appointed for the first time and an independent department organized. From 1792 to 1841, what is now Ontario was known as Upper Canada. From 1841 to 1867, it was part of the United Province of Canada, being known as Canada West to distinguish it from Quebec or Canada East. In 1867, however, it resumed its former status as a separate province, but with the new name of Ontario. In the formation of the government of the province, agriculture was placed under the care of a commissioner, who, however, held another portfolio in the cabinet. John Carling was appointed Commissioner of Public Works and also Commissioner of Agriculture. On taking office, Carling found the following agricultural organizations of the province ready to cooperate with the government. 63 district agricultural societies, each having one or more branch township societies under its care and all receiving annual government grants of slightly over $50,000 a provincial board of agriculture with its educational and exhibition work, and a fruit growers association, now for the first time taken under government direction and given financial assistance. One extract from the commissioner's first report will serve to show the condition of agriculture in Ontario when the Dominion was born. Quote, it is an encouraging fact that during the last year in particular, mowers and reapers and labor-saving implements have not only increased in the older districts, but have found their way into new ones, and into places where they were before practically unknown. This beneficial result has, no doubt, mainly arisen from the difficulty, or rather in some cases impossibility, of getting labor at any price." Unquote. 
It would appear, therefore, that the question of shortage of farm labour, so much complained of in recent years, has been a live one for forty years and more. In the second report of the Commissioner, 1869, special attention was directed to the question of agricultural education, and the suggestion was made that the Agricultural Department of the University and the Veterinary College might give some instruction to the teachers at the normal school. In the following year, however, an advanced step was taken. It was noted that Dr. Ryerson was in sympathy with special agricultural teaching and had himself prepared and published a textbook on agriculture. The suggestion was made that the time had arrived for a school of practical science. At the same time, Ryerson had appointed the Reverend W. F. Clark, the editor of the Canadian Farmer, to visit the Agricultural Department at Washington and a few of the agricultural colleges of the United States, and to collect such practical information as would aid in commencing something of an analogous character in Ontario. It will thus be seen that the two branches of technical training, the School of Practical Science and the Agricultural College, were really twin institutions, originating in the year 1870 in the dual department of public works and agriculture. These institutions were the outcome of the correlation of city and country industries, which were under the fostering care of the Agriculture and Arts Association, as the old provincial organization was known. The School of Practical Science, it may be noted, is now incorporated with the Provincial University, and the Agricultural College is affiliated with it. There were at that time two outstanding agricultural colleges in the United States, that of Massachusetts and that of Michigan. These were visited, and based upon the work done at these institutions, a comprehensive and suggestive report was compiled. Immediate action was taken upon the recommendations of this report, and a tract of land, 600 acres in extent, was purchased at Mimico, seven miles west of Toronto. Before work could be commenced, however, the life of the legislature closed and a new government came into office in 1871 with Archibald McKellar as Commission of Agriculture and Arts. New governments feel called upon to promote new measures. There were rumours and suggestions that the soil of the Mimico farm was productive of thistles and better adapted to brick-making than to the raising of crops. Also, the location was so close to Toronto that it was feared that the attractions of the city would tend to make the students discontented with country life. For various reasons, a change of location was deemed desirable, and a committee of farmer members of the legislature was appointed. Professor Miles of the Michigan Agricultural College was engaged to give expert advice. Other locations were examined, and finally Moreton Lodge Farm near Guelph was purchased. After some preliminary difficulties involving assistance of a sheriff or bailiff, possession was obtained, and the first class for instruction in agricultural science and practice, consisting of 31 pupils in all, was opened on June 1, 1874, with William Johnston as rector or principal. Thus was established the Ontario School of Agriculture, now known as the Ontario Agricultural College. Its annual enrollment has gone to over 1,500, and it is now recognized as the best equipped and most successful institution of its kind in the British Empire. Its development along practical lines and its recognition as a potent factor in provincial growth 
were largely due to Dr. James Mills, who was appointed president of the college in 1879 and filled that position until January 1904, when he was appointed to the Dominion Board of Railway Commissioners. Under his direction, Farmers' Institutes were established in Ontario in 1884. Dr. Mills was succeeded by Dr. G. C. Creelman as president. The next important step in agricultural advancement was the appointment in 1880 of the Ontario Agricultural Commission quote, to inquire into the agricultural resources of the province of Ontario, the progress and condition of agriculture therein, and matters connected therewith. End quote. The commission consisted of S. C. Wood, then Commissioner of Agriculture, Chairman, Alfred H. Diamond, Secretary, and sixteen other persons representative of the various agricultural interests, including the President and ex-President of the Agricultural and Arts Association, Professor William Brown of the Agricultural College, the Master of the Dominion Grange, the President of the Entomological Society, and two members of the legislature, Thomas Ballantyne and John Dryden. In 1913, there were but two survivors of this important commission, J. B. Aylesworth of Newburgh, Ontario, and Dr. William Saunders, who, after over twenty years' service as director of the Dominion Experimental Farms, had resigned office in 1911. All parts of the province were visited, and information was gathered from the leading farmers along the lines laid down in the Royal Commission. In 1881, the report was issued in five volumes. It was without doubt the most valuable commission report ever issued in Ontario, if not in all Canada. Part of it was reissued a second and a third time, and for years it formed the Ontario Farmers' Library. Even to this day it is a valuable work of reference, containing as it does a vast amount of practical information and forming an invaluable source of agricultural history. The first outcome of this report was the establishment in 1882 by the Government of the Ontario Bureau of Industries, an organization for the collection and publication of statistics in connection with agriculture and allied industries. Archibald Blue, who now occupies the position of Chief Officer of the Census and Statistics Branch of the Dominion Service, was appointed the first Secretary of the Bureau. Agriculture continued to expand and associations for the protection and encouragement of special lines increased in number and importance. Thus, there were no fewer than three vigorous associations interested in dairying, the Dairymen's Association of Eastern Ontario and the Dairymen's Association of Western Ontario, which were particularly interested in the cheese industry, and the Ontario Creameries Association, which was interested in butter manufacture. There were poultry associations, a beekeeper's association, and several livestock associations. From time to time the suggestion was made that the work of these associations and that of the Agriculture and Arts Association and of the Bureau of Industries should be coordinated and a strong Department of Agriculture organized under a Minister of Agriculture holding a distinct portfolio in the Ontario Cabinet. Provision for this was made by the legislature in 1888, and in that year Charles Drury was appointed the first Minister of Agriculture. The Bureau of Industries was taken as the nucleus of the department, 
and Archibald Blue, the secretary, was appointed deputy minister. We have referred to the reaction that took place in Ontario agriculture after the close of the American Civil War and the abrogation of the Reciprocity Treaty. The high prices of the Crimean War period had long since disappeared, the market to the south had been narrowed, and the western states were pouring into the east the cheap grain products of a rich virgin soil. Agricultural depression hung over the province for years. Gradually, however, through the early eighties, the farmers began to recover their former prosperous condition, sending increasing shipments of barley, sheep, horses, eggs, and other commodities to the cities of the eastern states, so that, at the close of the period to which we are referring, agricultural conditions were of a favorable and prosperous nature. End of section 2